Being trained in an effective crisis management system is imperative for minimizing behavioral issues and the need for restraint in schools and treatment facilities. But not all crisis management systems were created equal. If we are going to meet the growing intense behavioral needs of individuals while simultaneously reducing the need for restraints, every leader and policymaker who is involved in areas related to behavioral challenges should understand what a complete crisis management system is comprised of and how to embed one into any setting. For more information, check out crisisintervention.com. Welcome to the Crisis in Education podcast, where educational leaders and experts across the world dissect the root causes of issues and explore potential opportunities for sustainable improvement across schools and districts. And now your co-hosts, Dr. Polly and Drew. Okay, welcome to the Crisis in Education podcast. I'm your co-host, Dr. Polly, and we're here with Drew. Drew, welcome back to your extended from your extended vacation, brother. How you doing, man? I'm very tan. <laughs> <laughs> you do have a nice tan, man. Yeah. Where were you again? Oh, uh, uh, took the family to Curacao for a week, and then it was my uh, 20th wedding anniversary. So my wife and I went to Barbados for a week. Very nice, man. Yeah, yeah. Right. Very, I'm very, really happy to be home, though. Uh, I, I know, man. You're, we're, we're the type of guys that kind of get bored with uh, too much downtime, I suppose. Agreed. Right. Which, uh, well, anyway, so um, we are extremely fortunate today to welcome Dr. Rob Horner. He's Emeritus Professor of Special Education from University of Oregon. Uh, he's done research in applied behavior analysis. PBIS, multi-tiered systems, equity in education, systems change. And man, this, the stuff that he's into is just right up my alley. I mean, you know, Dr. Horner, just welcome to the podcast, man. I'm just really excited to chat with you. Delighted to be here, Polly. Yeah. So um, let me just start with saying that when I was introduced to PBIS and I want to uh, focus on, uh, you know, what, uh, what PBS is in education uh, back in 2006. Um, and I want to explore that a little bit, but before we do explore PBIS and what it's doing in the schools. If you could just give a like a little bit of your background, so the viewers are listening to know who you are. Sure, um, I was a uh, I, I worked in schools. I was a teacher and a child therapist for a number of years, and then I went back to uh, college. I got my degrees at the University of Oregon in special education. Uh, during that time, a lot of the work that we did, both when I was a teacher and when I was in the university uh, training program, were really focused on kids in schools who were struggling uh, academically and socially. I did a lot of work initially with kids with very severe intellectual disabilities who were actually engaged in self-injury and aggression. And we we learned just a huge amount, Polly. We learned we learned that if we were careful and thoughtful, we could produce change in the behavior of kids with real difficult problems that wasn't just superficial reduction in what they did, but it actually altered the trajectory of their social and academic careers. I mean, they, they developed uh, not just the ability to stop doing problem behaviors, but they actually gained the skills that allowed them to be successful socially and academically. That was a blast. I mean, it was so much fun, uh, not just to work with the children and their teachers, but also with the families 
The frustrating part, quite frankly, was we would work with a kid in third grade and then we'd see her again in sixth grade. And we'd think, well, wait a minute, we, we solved that. Uh, what we learned was that it's not enough to do these one at a time behavior interventions. They're absolutely necessary. And all of your listeners who are involved in ABA know how much we value that particular approach. But what we learned was that we had to gear up. We, we moved into thinking about whole classrooms. So we did individual interventions within classrooms. And then we found that really classrooms themselves were not even enough. The teacher would change. There, there were too many different classrooms, especially when you got into like middle school where kids go from class to class. So that led us to focusing on schools as a unit of analysis. And um, with that effort, we also really shifted into this notion of emphasizing that any good behavior support focuses as much on prevention as it does on intervention. And historically, especially the training that we that I got as a behavior analyst, we were almost always called in after there was a crisis. People were bleeding, people were in pain, people wanted somebody to go somewhere else. I mean, the number of IEP meetings I was in that started off by saying, we really appreciate and admire Emmanuel, and we think he's a wonderful kid, and we think he should be educated somewhere other than with us. Uh, was just too often, right? So part of what part of what led to PBIS was a focus on prevention and a recognition that too often behavior analysis was viewed as just a system of consequences, a system where people came in and delivered positive things for doing good and negative things for doing bad. People missed the fact that uh, behavior analysis is really about the design of effective environments and the proactive design of those environments. So um, I started working with George Sugai and with others in the field who had almost all of us had been in classrooms initially. And the, the strategy was to say, how can we take what we know about good instructional learning? Because good behavior support always involves good instruction. And how do we marry that with what we know about individual intervention, about classroom intervention, and then really the piece that had never been addressed is what is the role of the district and the state Department of Education in promoting good education? So we, we really were extraordinarily excited about the techniques and the strategies. I mean, the, the conversations that we had with each other were all about stimulus control and uh, schedules of reinforcement and competing behavior analysis. But we found that um, that wasn't language that resonated with the rest of the world. And that if we really wanted to have an impact, we needed to operate at a, at a larger level. And that's what led to PBIS. George Sugai really introduced this idea of saying, look, we've got this list of strategies and practices that we all know and love. 
But what we really need is a framework so that you take the right strategies and match them with the specific environment. And it was that notion of a flexible framework that would work different in inner city Chicago than it did in rural New Mexico. And the principles ended up being the same, but the path to implement those principles changed. The other thing that we really learned, Polly, and this, um, I, I think as a field, we still haven't come up with well enough, is that too often in education, we like to think about experts coming in and telling the rest of us in the trenches, this is, if you do this, God and all goodness will smile upon you. Um, in fact, what we learned is that good behavior support and good implementation is about empowering the strengths of the local setting. It's about what people already do well, building into strategies that they can do with efficiency and sustainability. So we started with the notion of not, let me tell you the 39 things that my PhD says would be things you need to do differently. And instead, we said, let's look at what you really do well, and let's look for the smallest change that'll make the biggest benefit for kids. Don't do everything. Just do that small change. And when you get that down, right, celebrate coffee and chocolate for everybody, and then ask the question again, what's the next smallest change? So... We ended up coming up with PBIS as being much more of this framework of improvement. Each child is the unit of impact. We're looking for things that change the academic and social outcomes for kids. Schools are the unit of analysis. Never implement PBIS at anything less than the whole school level and make it a multi-tiered strategy. Do, do prevention for everyone. Do a little bit more for those kids who are on the edges and are getting ready to tank out, but are, but are still okay. And then, come on, cowboy, gear up. Do the high-intensity, multi-component wraparound support for those kids who need it. But do it at a level where you don't just suppress problem behavior. You actively alter the social and academic trajectory of the kid for a decade. That's what PBIS was really all about. The key, and, and again, I think crediting George Sugai is appropriate, was really about giving people the data systems and the feedback loops that allowed them to see what they did well, identify where they could make the biggest difference, identify with... Um, how they could improve over time. And my goodness, one of the things I love about behavior support in schools is the array of strategies kids have for screwing up is so large <laughs> that anyone who claims to do behavior support sort of has a built-in system of humility. Um, you know, anybody who says they've got it all worked out isn't really working in schools on a regular basis. So 
The idea is not we've got the answer. It's that we've got a system where you can find an approach that works for you. So it is that journey that has really made uh, PBIS an exciting thing for us. Well, I mean, let me unpack some things in there, man. That was just well said. I can tell you've, you've said this stuff before because you're so fluent with it, uh, but it's very clear. Uh, you know, I mean, just like PBS, just like the science doesn't, doesn't, isn't intended to give us the answers, but it gives us a way to find them, I think. Um, I think it's uh, uh, brilliant um, to have systems in place because I think systems just makes behavior management much easier. And, uh, you know, good systems bring productive behavior under sinus control. And so this is just, that's how you build culture. And uh, the way that you guys broke things down into tiers, I, I think that it's really an efficient way to leverage resources um, that should also, and I believe it's beginning to, I wrote an article on it a while back, not a journal published article about, you know, we really need to use a tiered approach everywhere. I, I, let's use a tiered approach for coaching. And I, I've seen the positive impact of PBIS. I was trained in it by USF. Uh, back in the mid 2000s and I was a coach in schools and I've seen it be very successful and I've also seen it be very unsuccessful. Um, and so uh, f- first of all, like I, it must feel wonderful to you and your colleagues to know that this PBS, the last I checked the data, uh, we, it was in 27,000 schools across the country. And what an, just what an incredible thing to think about the number of generations of families that you're potentially helping uh, through this large scale application of the science of human behavior. And it's like unheard of in our field. And I love that the science is helping so many people. It's just really a beautiful thing. And I know there was some flack that happened in the, you know, a, a decade ago about PBS, which I didn't ever really understand that. But I, I, you know, it's just like, it's an amazing thing and making it um, practical and looking at using, you know, shaping with it, what I call, I actually wrote a book called Quick Wins on that, uh, you know, finding the easiest thing you can do that has the, you know, largest visible impact and then moving from there. That's a beautiful thing. Um, so the, the systems work. When it, here's, here's when I stumble across and I just have some questions for you about this. I'd love to get your thoughts on it. Um, when I first, I, w- I worked in a lot of very high poverty schools and high crime areas. And um, the first school that I was in, uh, it was, it was a mess. I mean, it was what I call the perfect storm. It was brand new administrators, brand new first and second year teachers and the kids, they'd stopped busing. And so all these community kids came back together and just the, the kids had taken over the school and they had, the school was trained in a system of PBIS and I was new to PBIS, but when they said, you know, Hey, we need you to come in here and maybe help turn the school around. And at the time they wanted me there because I was a big guy. I'm a fighter. I'm a crisis management guy. I'm like, I don't want to restrain kids all day long. This is terrible. You know, I want to help. I want things to be better. And, but I was also a slacker behavior analyst. I didn't go to conferences. I mean, I had my certification, but I didn't know much. And they said, well, can you help turn the school around? I'm like, in my mind, I'm like, no, <laughs> but then I thought, well, okay. Yeah, sure. And so I went to a colleague and I said, you know, they have PBS at the time. That's what it was called, but it seems like we need PBS for the adults. And they said, well, there kind of is something like that. It's called organizational behavior management. And they hand me the book by Aubrey Daniels called Bring Out the Best in the People. And I said, okay, this looks like the science. And in fact, it's, you know, PBS seems very similar to this. I want to see this kind of carryover between OBM. It's kind of like OBM in, in schools. And so I did it, uh, did some small things like, uh, 
help change arrival time because changing the whole school was too much, but I could certainly help get the kids safely off the bus into the cafeteria and back to class in the morning and uh, using very simple principles that were directly in line with PBS. What are the expectations? Let's have people at their post greeting the kids. And in the spirit of PBS, you know, making sure that we're creating a positive and safe environment for them using more reinforcement, certainly using punishment, but punishment, very simple, you know, Hey, stop running. Can you walk back? Thanks for walking. Have a great day. You know, so it was very positive in nature, right? Very useful. And it, and it worked and it spread and it gave buy-in for me and it gave buy-in for PBS because we showed that it could be effective here. So my question comes back to this because I've always felt this, but I can only judge it by the area that I was using it in and by how I was trained. I felt like it was PBS was missing the level of the, of the organizational level, right? And I, I've listened to your uh, another podcast of yours and you mentioned this. If the leader isn't on board, the, the, the PBS is very unlikely to stick. They have to use principles aligned with OBM. And now we think, all right. And I know that that was built in saying, hey, you know, we have to get staff buy-in of 80%. And I'm like, well, everybody would buy in if you were a good salesperson, if you could really show people and engage them, because why wouldn't you want this thing? If they don't buy in, it means you've really not messaged it very well. But it, but we still want, whether the leader buys in or not, we still need them to do it because they just don't know what they don't know, how it's going to make their job easier, how we're going to produce better student achievement, how, you know, they're going to get better attention and better quality of life. And we could certainly align this stuff with trauma-informed care. I, I heard you mentioning that before. And in order to make that happen, again, going up the levels, that means the district leadership has to be involved in it, and the state uh, state level has to be involved in it. And so uh, in the podcast I heard you on, I think it was Tash podcast, they asked what you would do to uh, make some changes. I know you talked about valuing it and setting the expectations, but I think until we have some sort of metric, regular metric in place at the state and maybe federal level for some of these pieces of it, it's there's not a value for it uh, unless, again, the principal values it or the district leaders. We have to make this stuff measurable and reinforced uh, if we want if we want that leader to engage in something. Maybe they're just doing it at first because they have to because they're being looked at. All right, that's negative reinforcement. But if they engage in the right behaviors and they see it's producing value and outcomes for them, then well, then we know we're going to get them in touch with with positive reinforcement. So coming back to that question about the levels, you know, what do you think is a solution to that? And am I on track with saying that, you know, I really think we need kind of have some OBM principles in place up the ladder to get PBIS to stick. Let's take a quick break. If you work across schools or treatment facilities and you want an environment characterized by students or clients behaving well and meeting their goals, you need everyday behavior tools. These tools are so powerful and generalizable that you can train anybody anywhere in them. And here is the best part. The entire instructor training is online. If you are interested in becoming an everyday behavior tools trainer to improve behavior in your organization while also generating more income for yourself, go to crisisintervention.com. Really good question, Polly. And the, the value of organizational behavior management has always been something that we've admired. The way that we've embedded it within PBIS really follows guidance from Dean Fixon and others in the implementation science field. 
in part, one of the things that they taught us is they said, look, stop whining about uh, individual children or families or you know, teachers who are struggling. They, what they told us is they said, if you look at any system, a school system, a healthcare system, um, a traffic system, the system will produce exactly the outcomes that it is designed mm -hmm. to deliver. Mm -hmm. Sometimes that design is not very thought out. It may not be that the outcomes that people wanted, but when you back up and look at the design of the system, it typically produces what it is organized to deliver. You can overcome the design by having individual short-term high-intensity efforts, but typically those only last for a little bit. If you want to produce things that are durable, you need to both operate at the minute level and operate at the systems level. So the, the, the mantra that we came up with was that students are the unit of impact, schools are a unit of analysis, and districts are the unit of implementation. We no longer implement PBIS in schools alone. We only go in when we have district buy-in and support. There we go. And what that means, part of what we look at is we, we look at the things that are really fun to do. We look at the extent to which schools are teaching school-wide expectations. We look at the extent to which schools are uh, formally building strategies to reach out to families. But we also look at the stuff that is much less sexy. We look at things like, how do you allocate your resources? When you hire personnel, to what extent is one of the hiring criteria, we're going to give preference to individuals who are knowledgeable and experienced in school-wide systems of academic and behavior support. Think about that, because if you hire people who are actually knowledgeable, it makes a huge difference. We, we had a problem, for example, in Oregon. 48% of the schools in Oregon use PBIS. And I got a call from one school district and they said, listen, we just interviewed a teacher that we want to hire. And she said she won't come and work in the district unless we use PBIS. And we, we didn't know what that was. And I said, well, that is a big problem and we can help you there. So it's an interesting, your notion about looking at systems, the way that people are hired, the way that people are evaluated, the way that data are collected. So one of the things, Polly, if you're an OMB person, I want you to get excited about this. In PBIS, we have developed and validated and verified a measure that schools can use to determine if they're implementing PBIS. So think about all the things that have been educational systems change efforts. They typically involve buying some very expensive materials and sending your people to a cosmic one-week workshop. And then they come back and you are now implementing Strategy X, not with PBIS. We've got the materials, we've got the workshops, but you are not implementing PBIS until you use 
a fidelity measure called the tiered fidelity inventory. Mm-hmm. And you actually measure if you're doing the things that affect kids. Mm-hmm. So if you can do it just through divine revelation, we're all for it. You, you're, you're good. But if you go to all the workshops and you're still not doing it, then you're not going to get the effects. One of the things we learned early on in education is there's no good idea that can't be done badly. And uh, so the real question is not if you've been trained, but are you actually doing this stuff? So the, the measure of fidelity, it does two things. One, it says, we think we need this. So we're going to use the measure and say, do we really need it? Second is it says, what are the things that we are not doing that we should do? And the third thing it says is over time, once a year, twice a year, let, let's take 15 minutes and we can go through these things and we can say, how are we doing? So the first question we ask, and you were saying you, you were trained, we would say, is the school using PBIS? Then we'd say, is it working? And in education, too often we say, is it working? And we say, oh, we're not getting the effects we want. PBIS doesn't work. But then when you go and you look and you say, are they actually doing it? You say, well, we're not actually doing it. Well, I feel that. And so, in, in, so that's, a, that's a huge, that's the problem, though. That's the cusp. And that's where the OBM, which, by the way, I think OBM can take a lot from what you guys built. You guys put a lot of systematic tools that OBM did not have. And when I look at it, I'm like, man, this stuff is brilliant. It could easily be generalized to business easily. And so a couple of things that and I just want to note that that you said in some questions. So we, we know training is an antecedent strategy. It's intended to get behavior going, but it's not going to keep behavior going. And so without a process for once people are trained for, and I know that coaching was already embedded into PBAS, but the coaches need to be embedded in the, the principles of behavior need to be institutionalized at the leadership level and anybody that's supporting it. If we're going to get those skills to stick, because people are going to fall back right on to their old habits. When the way I was trained, they 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 did develop the process right, and 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 you mentioned system, and you mentioned small. They got to work together. And what I found was that if we if you if you try to make systems change at that level, at the systems level, at the leadership level, it's very hard. But when you make it in a small, you know, in a classroom, in a hallway, in the cafeteria. Then you can get buy-in from the rest of the staff. It's kind of like we, we want buy-in. Well, let's show them. Let's reinforce them into it. That's how we get people to be involved with it. The f- fidelity info. I mean, so we're talking about like a treatment integrity here. It's great because it gives you a chance to find get a baseline. It gives you some sort of metric that hope that can be used to give feedback and and reinforce improvement or make changes a- as as you need it. And I know that you have discipline referrals uh, as well that are a process to help you measure behavior. And I think in many schools, those that's very appropriate metrics. Um, here's one of the things I found with discipline referrals. Uh, and this is not, man, first of all, I want to say that anything I bring up, it's like, I'd love everything with the PBS. So the stuff I bring up are like nuances, things that I've thought about, like, man, maybe it could be approved here a little bit, there a little bit. So there's no knock on it. It's brilliant. It's helped me a lot. Uh, it led me to OBM. So um, one of the issues that I found with office discipline referrals is that we're measuring the behavior of people actually inputting those referrals. And schools with like high rates of behaviors, uh, we're not getting fidelity of those processes. And the metric of that is one of the fidelity inventories that you had. I forget what it was called, but they just kind of asked you to gauge it. And it's a simple metric. And I like that you guys have that there's simple metrics with PBIS. 
But unfortunately, we don't really know how many people are actually writing referrals. So one of the things that I did was I created a coding process. I did a dissertation on it that was published, and it's it's certainly probably crappy research because I'm not a good researcher at all, but the process didn't work. <laughs> and so all I did was, Rob, was that when a teacher called for assistance, and this is in the schools that I worked at, they there was an intercom. So they would push the button and they would call for help and help would come. But a couple of things was that they would say, I, I need an administrator. You know, and, you know, there was no way to uh, differentiate how quickly you needed a response. You know, that could be just little Drew giving the teacher a hard time and the school leader will get there as soon as they're done talking to the parent or the superintendent or whatever they're, they're doing. But if, you know, little Drew was throwing chairs through the through the window, you know that you need immediate response. So we coded these things. Code one, you know, continuous aggression, self-injurious behavior. Code two, high magnitude disruption. Code three was out of assigned area, like elopement, right? So you knew how to differentiate your response to that. But the big piece of this, besides that, and that was important, was that that call for assistance became a metric. And when you record that data point, you should have a direct correlation between we got and I was getting in these elementary schools, 50 calls a day at school with 600 kids, right? If I have 50 calls for assistance to the classroom to remove the student, I should theoretically have 50 referrals. And it was way off. We were getting about 40 to 60% of referrals being written. So that means that we're using data that was not accurate in the school. And so this helped us in the schools we went to future to say, hey, we got codes from these classrooms, guys. Don't forget to input the referrals because the codes certainly didn't have the level of information in it that a oh, referral wow. did, but it helped us to shape up that referral process. So I found that to be very helpful in it. But but the big question here is that was it is it is it the process that put the whole system in place the way I was trained at USF, or is the process because you keep going back to this? And I believe what you're saying is correct and the better way to do it in general, I'm not saying all the time, is to start somewhere small and build it out from there because I believe that you create a want for that, for more of this stuff. Everything we've learned has been to start small and build out. The thing that you have to be careful of, if you take an individual school, you have to do enough that you get a critical mass of practices to get an effect. Mm -hmm. So if you just start rewarding positive behavior, but you haven't actually taught and you don't have any consequences for inappropriate behavior, you're not going to get the effect. Mm -hmm. So part of what we've got is this measure of, are you implementing PBIS? But we've also said, look, at tier one, unless you get to 70%, don't expect change in kid behavior. Once you get to 70%, our data indicate you'll start seeing change in the overall behavior of kids in the school. Now, you raised a couple of issues. One <clears throat> was the, the office discipline referrals as a, as a unit, a metric of, of progress. And uh, a guy named Larry Irvin just did a beautiful set of studies looking at this whole notion of office discipline referrals. An office discipline referral is not just a measure of kid behavior. It's also a measure of adult behavior. And you can find schools where the teachers are so into writing office discipline referrals that uh, we had one school where the teacher started her day by writing five office discipline referrals in advance because she knew that this was going to happen and she had them all written out ready to go, right? And, and we have others, <laughs> right? So it's the a self-fulfilling others, prophecy right there. <laughs> exactly. 
Exactly. And other teachers are so prideful in their ability to manage things that they don't ever want to fill out a referral. They, they think they can make it work. So in part, the reason we use office discipline referrals is they are mandated by both the federal government and every state department of education. So we use office discipline referrals because they are the unit that already exists. Mm, okay. Now, the second part is we, we teach schools to become a little more systematic in the way they use office referrals. We give them operational definitions. We develop a rule for what's called minor infractions and major infractions, mm -hmm. right? And so if you're using that system, you get a little bit more consistency. We also found very early on that... Um, Schools in some communities had low ODR, schools in others had high, and it was really much more related to the culture of that context. So rather than comparing across schools, we compared within schools. Regardless of what your measure is, how do we reduce it by 40 percent, mm -hmm. right? And we, we also learned that um, student suspensions and especially student expulsions were harder metrics. When we first started doing the research, we would actually go into, we would go into schools and have our graduate students watch student behavior. So we measured student behavior in the classroom, in the hallway, in the cafeteria, on the playground, mm -hmm. and we mapped it against official office discipline referrals. So we use direct observation in addition to some of the other measures when we were first building some of the strategies, especially when we got into uh, addressing bullying behaviors and things of that nature. So we have no misconception about office discipline referrals being a rocket science metric, but we do believe that if the teachers see the data being used, the data become more reliable, more useful. Mm -hmm. So one of our one of our mantras is never ask people to collect data that they don't see used for decision making within a month. Yeah, I that, and I think that's a great mantra. And unfortunately, um, and again, it's the schools. I'm looking at the schools where it wasn't effective, and it wasn't effective because people were using the systems right. And um, this kind of data, it's people end up using data to punish, right? And so we need to use metrics not to show people they're not measuring up. We need to use it to your point to say, all right, here's your baseline. Let's start moving this in the right direction. This comes back to the organizational behavior management approaches and how is that school leader doing it? And I would think that would be like a really important metric to look at at the state and federal level. Like how, may, how often are you sharing data with your staff? How often are you giving them positive feedback? How are staff feeling about your leadership right on up and, and not use their that data that kind of feedback to punish the leader the district leaders need to then support the school leaders using same principles outlined in pbis to shape their behavior and to help them improve because that some of the research that i found was that that one person the school leader can impact student achievement by up to 34 percent, and we know they set the standard for that school culture being shared behavior. And so I think that they need a lot of support at that level. And I think that, you know, I don't know, we can't force it, of course. Um, and I love that you guys are putting in, putting in the piece that says, hey, the district needs to be involved. And I'm curious to know what that looks like now, because that is like, thank God that is there. 
you know, and what is, what is the district responsible to do and how do we, and you guys certainly can't do this, you know, but we, how do we make sure that the district is doing it? Like, I kind of wish the community and we could have some, a complete feedback loop. So the community knew that the district was supporting the school leader and the school leader was supporting the teacher. And there was metrics because the principal should be able to report out that I feel supported by my district leadership, you know, and because if they don't feel supported, if they don't feel safe, if they don't feel like they have the tools to do it, then they're not going to perform well. And, and, you know, it's leadership in these places is extremely, extremely difficult, especially when there's behavioral problems there. Good point. We, we place a huge emphasis on the role of the district. We actually have not just a fidelity measure for schools. We have a fidelity measure for the district. And uh, both the work that we do and the work of the um, state implementation systems work out of North Carolina that Karen Ward, Dean Fixon, Karen Blasey have done is a superb example of focusing on the state and the district level. Here's what districts do. Districts are the place where you establish the data systems that are used in schools. Schools don't have the resources or the structure to build data systems. Districts do. Districts build the HR policies, the selection, the evaluation, the hiring. Districts determine if schools allocate resources to school psychologists, counselors, and social workers, who in most cases, Polly, are those coaches. And part of what we learned, I, I really am interested more in your experience as a coach. We learned that we can do professional development to introduce new skills and knowledge. We can teach people through online courses, through workshops, through in-service training on new things. Coaching for us is not teaching or training. Coaching is helping people apply what they have learned in natural conditions. So we actually have looked at the functions of coaching, the uh, prompting, so that if you are learning to do something, the coach can say, okay, here's when it's going to happen. Are you prepared for tomorrow's lesson plan? Mm -hmm. Right? So you can prompt that. Professional feedback, performance feedback in terms of saying, hey, you did it. And not just did you do it right or did you do it wrong, but the fluency, the speed, the nuance, you, you improve it when you give feedback. You say, listen, it's really nice when you tell the kid, hey, you did a good job, but it's much better if you tell the kid what she did that was a good job. The more specific the praise and feedback, the better the impact. That would be an example of coaches providing feedback. So we, we have become better over the past decade at um, defining a role for school psychologists, counselors, and social workers and behavior specialists to be in schools doing the coaching that uh, brings the basic principles to active implementation in a specific setting. Yeah. And I think, uh, man, you know, you are speaking my language here. Uh, you know, we know training is about skill acquisition uh, and coaching. I actually wrote a book with Dr. Nick Wedley. I don't know if you know Nick. He's an OBM guy too. 
Uh, it's called deliberate coaching, and it's that uh, we define coaching that way is that supporting the transference of skills into the natural environment. We want to get those skills in touch with naturally occurring consequences so you can fade out. And so uh, it's great when we root in function, because when I did my research on coaching, there was like 150 definitions. You know, they're all topographical and they look similar, you know, with feedback. And I, I look at, you know, training is about telling and coaching is about asking, right? Making the shift and helping people to be better assessors, problem solvers, problem solvers, decision maker, and take effective action in those settings. And so, uh, but I think that coaching should be cascading down uh, and again, institutionalized into the uh, entire PBI system from the superintendent to the deputy superintendent down the line. And with the system in place, and you guys already have, you, the PBS had the most systems I've ever seen. It was the first time I was introduced to systems. And so there's like systems and systems and systems. And it's great when people know how to, to follow this stuff. And so, but I think fundamental to these systems is coaching. You know, we, we create a system then we have to teach people how to drive, you know? Uh, and then I think that's where the, you know, we teach them and then we coach them to make sure that they're staying inside the bounds and everything and getting them in touch with positive reinforcement. Hopefully that's going to sustain their behavior. Um, so, I, I mean, I really love the stuff that you guys are uh, doing here. Can, can I ask you about social validity? And uh, one of the big issues that I have um, with uh, education, and this drives me nuts, Rob, um, is that uh, they we, they do like a climate survey or culture survey. What's at the end of the year? Rob, that's a freaking autopsy. What, what are you going to do with that <laughs> at the end of the year? You know, I mean, like it's 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 silly. And so. Um, when I, I use educational language, I'll say, you know, you need to think about this as a formative assessment. And in a classroom, you won't have a teacher doing a formative assessment at the end of the year or at the end of the month. You have them doing it regularly because it's going to guide their instruction. And, and school leaders, especially in schools that are struggling with behavior, they can't afford to wait a year. They can't afford six months or even quarterly, like, frankly, weekly assessment to find out how people are feeling about the way things are going on and use that to guide. And then you start to fade out. And I just believe, and I don't mean like a deep climate survey, 20, it could be a five question Google form. And that stuff should be used again for that leader to uh, guide their leadership, but also for district leadership to better coach that leader in those pieces of it. What, what are your thoughts about that? Um. I have lots of thoughts about that. And I, I really appreciate your comment about collecting stuff at the end of the year that uh, only tells you what you should have done. The, there, there are two, two basic messages. The first is most of those measures are not for the teachers or the school. They're for the district. And the, the district uses this to say, um, are we moving in the right direction? The thing that is interesting is when you mandate the collection of data, but you don't mandate that the data are used for action planning, it really makes no difference. The only reason to collect data is to make decisions. So we've got a lot of data systems. We don't have a lot of decision systems. <clears throat> we would argue never collect data unless you know the decision you're going to influence with that data. Now, to your point, what we have also learned, we actually have um, a team-initiated problem-solving strategy that we've used with literally thousands of schools, where we teach school teams and district teams to collect data, use the data to make decisions, build action plans, and implement. We actually did a randomized control trial demonstrating 
that we were able to take school teams, most of whom would gather and engage in um, problem complaining, not problem solving. They would talk about how big the problem was, about how sad the problem was, about how whose fault it was. They, they would talk and talk and talk, but they didn't actually come up with stuff. We took exactly the same humans, gave them training in problem solving, and we documented that they could come up with very efficient, locally relevant strategies that they implemented that actually changed kid outcomes. So um, the issue is not the staff in schools. The issue is that we are not training them and giving them the time to operate as efficient decision makers. Your point was, if we're going to do that, how do we give them the data upon which to act? We'll think about in elementary school, we've learned about reading performance. You need to assess reading with every kid by October 15. You need to then take the kids who are, who are having difficulty and have them on a more frequent uh, assessment of reading. And you need to use the data to indicate if you're going to work on phonemic segmentation, if you're going to work on oral reading fluency, if you're going to work on vocabulary development. You use the data to allocate kids into groups and make it work. You do the same with behavior. So you're looking at saying, where do we make the difference? Now, the one thing that I would say is what we found is in most cases, it takes about uh, three months for a team to come up with a plan, implement the plan well enough that you get change in kid outcomes. So we measure, we, we expect schools to measure what they're doing and a, a measure of school climate, whether kids perceive the environment as safe, whether they perceive the teachers as being fair is very appropriate. And as you say, it needs to be highly efficient. So use the information technology we have so that you collect it in a half hour. You don't take a week to do, uh, right? But then you use the data. So we would say, collect the data, don't just collect it the next week and then be sad that it still looks the same. Wait for, wait for one to three months, depending on the, the system you're using, then collect the data again, then collect the data again. So we are very, very strong advocates of iterative data collection. But the one difference that I would make is I think in education, we do too much data collection to meet requirements. We do things that are mandated and we collect data for somebody else. So the messages that we have given are, look, you've got to do some of that to get funding, but don't build data systems, build decision systems. Define the cycle that you're going to use for using the data for decision-making. And the thing I, I want you to really be excited about, Polly, we actually did this several times. We looked at the data and the teachers said, oh, the data are total bunk. Um, we, I, I've got a whole bunch of office referrals in my desk that I haven't even handed in. And we said, well, why? And they said, well, nobody uses that stuff. It just goes to the district. When we taught and demonstrated 
that the data they delivered was used for decision-making, we got an increase in the frequency and the accuracy with which people collected data. Data are power. And when you empower people with the right data at the right time in the right form, we do the same thing with what people are looking at right now related to the uh, disproportionality of office referrals and suspensions and expulsions by grade level, by gender, by race, by ethnicity. And it's one thing to show people that kids who are African-American are 2.8 times as likely to be referred to the office and 4.6 times as likely to be suspended for the same offense as their white peers. But it's much better when you show them that those data resulted in decisions that changed what that looked like. That's, that's when the data becomes powerful and that's when you get the, the types of organic systems. That's when you get teachers being creative about how to make it work in their context. I, man, I, I so agree with that stuff. Um, and I just want to, everything we're talking about, we're looking at the student level, but I just want to take this same approach and it needs to go up. We're going to bring out the best in the students. We have to bring out the best in the teachers. So we can't just be looking at student behavior uh, data. We need to look at uh, in, in, student, in social validity at the student level. We need to be looking at teacher performance and teacher social validity and up the chain. And, uh, you know, so when, we, when I talk about the climate surveys, I'm talking about for the teachers as well. We need to make sure that they feel safe and secure and supported by leadership and the school leader feels that way by district. There's got to be a chain of this stuff all the way up. And I think I think that is already built into to PBIS And because I've heard teachers say, well, I'm not going to fill out that that climate survey. Nobody's going to respond to it. But to your point, and when I say to the school leader, like, no, they're not responding to it because you're not acting on it. Who wouldn't want to have a voice if you say if the teachers are saying they feel this way and you know that two reasons, right? So we want to make it reinforcing to the school leader to do it. It could be mismessaging, right? And they wouldn't know if they don't ask the teachers what, how they feel about something, or there could be a why about it that they don't know, or they have a good point. And so they can actually make some changes based on that feedback from the teachers. And that's, you know, that's really involving giving teachers choice in doing things as a team, as opposed to doing things to them. So I just think this, this social validity piece from the student all the way up. And I believe that this kind of data is very sensitive. And of course it can be biased. You can look like norms across the school and norms across the district and, and similar schools, but I think there needs to be a loop again. And I think that part of it is that um, if there's not a way to give data anonymously and people aren't certain that it's anonymous, that can really impact the you know how accurate that they will be when they're reporting out. I think things like um, for the school leader is certainly not going to say they're not feeling supported by the district leader um, if they feel like there's going to be some sort of retribution for that. So that data should go to a third party. Why not involve the board with it and to say like you know hey and you know the. the here is kind of because this should be one of the like a bound scorecard. Your district, your school leaders feel safe and their your student achievements moving in the right direction. Because if they don't feel safe and secure and student achievements moving in the right direction, we know that there's probably some sort of coercive leadership going on to move it. And we're not going to sustain that. That's going to trickle down. That's certainly not aligned with principles of PBIS. So this idea of social validity all the way up the chain and as a, as a loop, as an important metric, I think it's just like really important. And I'm pretty sure that is embedded into PBIS, is it not? It is. Yes. Uh, the, the thing that you're getting at, which I think is really important, 
One of the overriding assets of education in the United States is that most teachers actually want the kids to succeed. They are actively, personally invested in the success of their children. Our job, as we look at building the system, is to give those good intentions the opportunities that they deserve. We want to give people the skills in, in explicit instruction. We want to give them the time to actually plan. We want to give the student-teacher ratio at an adequate level so that the teacher can, in fact, differentiate and respond, not just to the kids who are doing well, but also organize so that kids who are early on and struggling can catch up and do well. So we know that. Uh, I think we have not, as a field, done a great job of defining the role of principal or district administrator as well as we could. I think thinking about that role, not just as a manager, but as an educational leader and, and introducing the sense of how do you organize systems not to force people to do well, but to lead people to do brilliantly. And um, that always involves helping people choose how they allocate their creative energies. Uh, and ed education has a huge space for educational innovation and creativity. I, I man, every time you talk, man, I just like so much stuff comes to my mind. I, I, again, I just love it so much. So I have like, I have like three or four questions. I just, I want to get out uh, because I know you're the guy to answer those, um, you know, or, or, and, and some thoughts. So uh, here's a thought about that. Now I think of OBM as like the DNA of leadership. And that's why I'm like, I think that all school leaders should be trained in this. I taught at, at higher education in school leadership and theory is not going to do the job. You no know, theory does not transfer, doesn't make a leader. They need coaching. They need supportive, but those coaching them need to understand the principles of human behavior and to, to, you know, we, how to bring out the best in people, the difference between negative reinforcement compliance and how using negative reinforcement or and positive reinforcement rather, and how, you know, using negative reinforcement is just going to get people to do just enough to get by and only when you're looking, but how can we generate more positive reinforcement at the leadership level? Because school leadership is probably the most difficult leadership position in the nation. I believe the management ratios are off, you know, uh, there's, you know, there's, you know, they have to engage in training and coaching and managing and leading, you know, and just, there's a lot of policies out there that are hard to stick with. And, and teachers are coming in unprepared to meet the demands of the classroom. And there's, there's a lot that are leaving. And so, um, one of my things that I always wonder about, and this is old research that I'm citing, so maybe you know better than me, but the last I checked, only one in three universities were teaching any sort of, say, behavior or classroom management, in which, uh, if that's true, that it, it, it's mind-boggling to me, given that most teachers leaving the field, one of the big issues that they're citing are issues with uh, behavior, and another big issue are issues with leadership. So if we think about if we if we embedded behavior principles into leadership training programs and into uh, uh, universities, I think the job, your job and what you guys are doing in, 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 in our education would be just a lot better. People just don't understand. So is that what that number I cited, do you have any idea of what that is right now, if that still stands true? The, the number goes up and down a little bit, but basically it's true. Yeah. Colleges of education 
focus uh, too little on basic classroom management, and I would argue basic principles of human behavior. Mm-hmm. What are ways that people learn? The one caveat there is um, schools that are training special education teachers almost always include much more significant focus on not just classroom management, but uh, tier two and tier three supports for kids with more significant needs. What has happened in education is too often we assume that um, the kids will come in behaving well, and if they behave badly, then they go to somebody else to get fixed. Mm -hmm. So it again the system is based on a wait and see and fix a problem rather than a proactive strategy for minimizing the problem. We still think of behavior support as something you do to children. We don't understand that behavior support is really the design of an effective environment. So, Which, which almost always means that almost always that the educators and the, the adults in that building are going to need to do something more or less or differently. It's really changing their behavior in order to change students' behavior, which is a which is a fundamental mind shift because they think specialists that come in are going to sprinkle magic behavior to us. And it's not their fault. It's they don't. It's not their fault. I think it's almost like our field's fault because we have not done a good job helping people to understand that we're going to come in there and help to create an environment that supports the behavior that we want to get. So I think we, as a field, need to do a lot better of helping other people understand how we can best support them. I agree. And in your that really comes back, Polly, to your comment about buy-in. Um, and because we use the whole school as our unit of analysis, we really want to not just, we, we want to reach the hearts and minds of individual teachers, but we want those teachers to feel that they are part of a unit where they, their administrator, their psychologist, their other teachers are all on board with them. When, when I go to a school and, and we're struggling, like the school that you were describing, and you talk about, are we going to get buy-in to implement PBIS? I usually start by saying, are you happy with how the kids are behaving? And people say, no, we're not happy with how the kids are behaving. And I would say, well, then, second question is, who believes that the kids will behave differently unless we do something different? Who believes that they'll change if we just keep doing what we're doing? Everybody, ha, 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 right? Then I say, okay, let's agree to, let's agree to a small set of rules, all right, right now. One, let's only do things that are evidence-based. Whatever we do, I mean, let, let's not get into woo-woo land. Let, let's do things that are evidence-based. Second, let's only do things that focus on improving valued outcomes for kids. Third, let's do the smallest change that makes the biggest difference and builds on what we already do well. And finally, let's agree right here, we will never add something new unless we identify something we're already doing that we stop. So we will not simply add new things to the load of already um, overworked personnel. So when I can get a group of people to agree to those things, mm-hmm. then I say, look, 
I'm going to talk about PBIS, but this is not a religion. This is, this is an approach to making schools more effective learning environments. If you've got something that is better, faster, and cheaper, Cowboy, we are for it. But we have done the research that demonstrates if you implement these practices at 70% fidelity, you'll get a 20 to 60% reduction in office discipline referrals. You'll get a reduction in staff turnover. You'll get an increase in the extent to which the students identify the the environment as both safe and fair, okay? And if you do it for a minimum of three years in elementary schools, you'll get an improvement in academic outcomes. And doesn't so, have to be that three years. I've, we've done it in a year. Suspension's gone from 792 to 67. School's gone from a F to a C. And we had some other things in place there too that actually wanna, I want to ask you about. Uh, I know because we're coming out at the end there, so I don't mean to cut you off there, uh, Rob. Uh, because I so appreciate all the stuff that we're talking about. There's very exciting to me. So two things. I'm going to, unfortunately, I think maybe the, the last one is might be the toughest one, or it might be a quick response to it. Um, um, I found, and this is just my personal, so I don't want to deter anybody from doing this. It's just my personal feelings about it and my personal experiences based on my history. I found that token economies in the, in the PBIS confound the process, right? So in other words, I, I, I want to see just in general, let's just start by being nice to the kids and let's start by being nice to the adults in the building, right? Let's greet them in the morning, ask them how their weekend is. We would might call this non-contingent attention. Let's use some behavior specific praise. Cause I feel that if you don't have that stuff in place, the token economy is just is, is complex and complexity is the enemy of scalability and execution and sustainability. And so a lot of the schools that I was in, they were relying on the token economy and we would go to the these meetings and almost instead of looking at the data and looking at the interventions and thinking about what we need to do more or less or differently to make a change, the discussions would be a lot about, you know, how we're distributing tokens and this, that, and the other. Now, certainly there could be a subcommittee for that, but the schools that are at just didn't have the personnel to do it. So I felt that, you know, I would just like start simply and just remove that at the beginning and maybe use it. In a small, hey, we're going to do this thing for the day or a week or something very simple. We're handing out raffle tickets and make it just so it's not complicated. So uh, that's one thing. I'm going to put this other one on so you can answer them in, a, in, in tandem. Um, and the other thing is that, and I think this is a misnomer. I believe it is. And I don't think, uh, you know, and I saw some early research on it and that that people thought that with PBS, you weren't supposed to use punishment. And, um, you know, because I think they misunderstood punishment. I think the uh, at the. the um, the the core philosophy of PBS is just to create a positive climate where we're teaching people and shaping behavior. But I don't think PBS said uh, do not use punishment. I think they don't want course of leadership and course of education in an environment where people don't want to be because what's happened is, and what I've seen is that the people weren't being trained on how to use punishment, why overuse of punishment is wrong and why and why you need to use positive reinforcement but given the tools that can act effectively along with positive reinforcement to stop some of the behavior that you don't want and uh you know get the behavior that you do want things like i just mentioned like a student's running in the hallway just having them stop and walk back and you know when they walk back again saying great thanks have a good day effective use of timeout versus time owed you know a lot of teachers have either reprimand timeout 
in the classroom and out of the classroom. And I find that because they're not equipped with the tools and to understand the principles of both positive reinforcement and punishment and how to use it, uh, use it appropriately and when to use it. And so the ripple effect of coercion, if you have a coercive environment, that they end up feeling like all this positive reinforcement stuff doesn't work. And uh, where a good balance of it, right, and creating a positive reinforcing environment through good instruction, engagement, and, you know, establishing yourself as a positive reinforcement is very powerful. So you can really minimize the use of some simple punishment. So, you know, so there's the token economy one there, and then there's the use of punishment. Those are those are my thoughts. Okay. Good questions. Um, so let's do the punishment one first. Okay. Um, the word punishment itself carries a lot of baggage. So you've got to be a little bit careful. And the, so the, um, the, the basic message is an effective environment is one where students know in advance what the appropriate behavior is. They are not allowed to engage in inappropriate behavior that results in them getting the attention from peers or the escape from uh, tough tasks or things of that nature. Most what we find, schools that use punishment a lot also are inadvertently rewarding problem behavior. Mm -hmm. So what we would argue, one is start before the kid has a chance to mess up, teach them what are the appropriate things, be respectful, be responsible, try your best, whatever. All right. Then when they engage in a problem behavior, don't label the problem behavior and teach it as a problem behavior. Label it as the absence of being respectful, being responsible, trying your best. Say, look, hey, running in the hall is not being responsible or being respectful. And your notion about backing up, backing up prevents running from being rewarded, right? Mm -hmm. So it's a corrective consequence. What you described was just the same as we do if somebody were doing an arithmetic problem and did something wrong. You'd say, stop, back up to the point where you, and let's do it the right way, mm -hmm. right? So what you described was an example of preventing problem behavior from being rewarded, teaching the appropriate alternative, and ensuring that the appropriate behavior is much more likely to be followed by something positive than the problem behavior. The other thing that we have learned is if you want to create an environment that the kids identify as positive, they need to experience at least four positive interactions for every correction. Mm -hmm. So if you have a rate of high positives, your corrections are not identified what we, as, as being problematic. What we find with teachers who are about to, to leave the field because they can't control kids is they are engaging in high rates of correcting, 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 mm -hmm. correcting. They are not teaching in advance. They are not interrupting, redirecting, and rewarding. And that's different than saying, I'm going to give you a zinger when you do something wrong. Mm -hmm. Now, tokens. Um, oh, by the way, I want to just note that there's some research that came out in 2019 and it's for special ed and they didn't stop. They stopped at nine to one. They're up to nine to one ratio as a research out of a, uh, it's called teacher praise reprimand ratios. Uh, yes. anyways, I just throw that. Okay. You, uh, yeah. 
a guy named Bud Fredericks did the initial four to one. Mm-hmm. If you do nine to one, people um, think, oh my goodness, I can never do that. Well, but think- if you talk about if you talk about four to one, yeah. they they find that they can achieve that. Basically, the, the there's nothing magical about a particular ratio, mm-hmm. and it changes at grade levels. The younger the kid, the higher the positive to negative ratio. The older, more experienced the kid, the anyway. So, but that I know you you're running out of time. So let's talk about tokens. For no, just I do want I do want to comment on the punishment thing because you made a good point there, right? So perception, right? So it's the p word. People receive you know experience punishment as this, that, and the other. But there's another half of that is that if they feel like you were not supposed to correct misbehavior, right? And they feel that people who didn't buy into PBS felt like that they weren't allowed to. And that it was a bad thing to do that. Instead of understanding that we want to create a highly positively reinforcing environment that's predictable to people, right? That supports learning. We want to make sure people have the skills and the motivation, but if they don't know how to deliver the correction and when to do it, why to do it, then they think that PBIS doesn't work and they just fundamentally don't understand it. So I feel like that also can turn a certain subset of people off to it. So I just want to make that comment. Correcting inappropriate behavior is one of the core elements of PBIS. Yeah. Okay. And that was my argument um, for it. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> in, in terms of tokens, uh, I think uh, tokens become a, they, they can become a mirage that muddies things up. The goal is to create an environment where kids identify themselves as being acknowledged for doing things the right way. So I want you to walk down the hallway and I want you to stop 15 different kids and say, kid, one, do you know what the appropriate behaviors are that are expected in this school? Do you know what's expected? And there should be three to five and they should be able to tell you what they are. And then you say, okay, I know you know the word, be respectful, but tell me what that means right here. What does it look like right here? Right. And, um, and then you stop and you say, Cowboy, has anybody acknowledged you for doing things the right way in the past two weeks? In schools that actually use PBIS, 80% of the kids can answer those three questions. Now, if what they say is, I've been taught what is expected, but nobody acknowledges me, then you've got to say, well, the teachers are saying, we're acknowledging kids like mad. The kids are saying, nobody's acknowledging me, right? It's the kid's perception that's going to drive the outcomes. Mm -hmm. So in part, what we learned was two things. Tokens are 60% for the staff, 40% for the kids. This, If you use a token economy, part of what it does is it, it institutionalizes and automatizes a routine for acknowledging kids. So you don't just walk up and give somebody a token and say, nice job. You always say, hey, you guys were doing this behavior. I appreciate that. Here's the token. So label the behavior, personalize it, and then link it to the token. For Let me keep going for just a little bit. For 70% of the well-nurtured kids in the school, they don't need tokens. They, they already believe that your personal statement is powerful. It's a functional reinforcer. 
for 30% of the kids and in inner city schools, maybe up to 60% of the kids, they come from environments where adult behavior is much more capricious. They do not trust adults. They do not, they do not find adult praise reinforcing. They, they have learned to stay as far away from adults as possible at all times. Part of what it takes is you don't say, but I am a good adult. I'm a nice person, and we're going to have a deep, meaningful, loving relationship. Kids, don't res- kids will respond to the hundreds of little interactions, mm-hmm. not your one well-intentioned, heartfelt message. Mm-hmm. Tokens are a way of building a positive link between adults in the building and those kids who are at greatest risk. And it's very hard sometimes to figure that out. I agree with you that um, too often schools are not sufficiently skilled at doing token systems, and they get bogged down in the mechanics, missing the bigger message. I worry a little bit about the notion of, well, we don't need tokens. We're just going to be clear about our praise because one, what we find is that'll work great for 40% of the teachers, but not for 80% of the teachers. Two, the praise that we consider to be so positive is not a functional reinforcer for kids who come from more chaotic backgrounds. And we want to create schools that work for them. Building the token exchange routine actually does make a difference. So um, I think it's a little more of a nuanced response, but I, I would be uncomfortable throwing out the notion of token economies as something that's an important part of effective school systems. Yeah. And I would say that um, I wouldn't want to, I, I think it would be contextual. Um, I know when I've, I've gone into turnaround failing schools and uh, didn't use tokens with them, uh, but focus on really the skills that you mentioned, building, you know, getting the, the staff to um, establish themselves as positive reinforcers. And I believe that um, what I want to do, I believe to start there, if we want to use tokens at the level, let's use the tokens for the staff. And let's uh, <laughs> seriously, let's reinforce yeah. them for like, if I ask the students um, if they know the expectations, uh, let's give them staff a token for it. Right. Uh, or do them both the same because we have to reinforce the, the staff for delivering the tokens. And the cheat for that is that, you know, if you're looking, say, counting tokens, that's one of the things that can be done is that they end up giving mass amounts of tokens just the day before that this, um, you know, the uh, the school store is going to come out. And as I mentioned, these meetings where we could be looking at good behavior and uh, the data and seeing how people are responding to it, they end up being about these tokens. So I'm certainly not saying you should never use tokens, right? I would love to see maybe at the beginning of the school year when that one, hey, we're going to reinforce the students every time they can tell us the three expectations that are in the hallway. And we're also going to reinforce the teacher, if we ask th- three students and two out of the three know it the first day, you know what I mean? And maybe it's three yeah, out of three yeah. the couple of days later. So I think they need to be combined because we need value for the teachers and doing as well. And then I think you faded out. 
I think that gives a chance, you know, and then you use it intermittently. I just think that from, again, I don't want to overgeneralize this. This is just in the settings that I was at. I wanted to focus on, I did laps around the building and I wanted to establish myself as a positive stimulus, reinforcing people for being at their post, greeting the kids, smiling at them, having them walk back, whatever it is, those simple things that they were doing, uh, having a permanent product in their classroom that let me know that they pre-corrected expectations, you know, pulling a couple aside, a couple kids and saying, you know, Hey, what are the expectations and sending an email at the end of the day saying, Hey, I asked, you know, went through 10 classes today. And out of the 20 kids I asked, you know, 16 knew the expectations. This is wonderful. I know next time it's going to be 20. So again, taking all the systems that we're talking about here and just moving them up a level, right. And moving those. Yeah, up I love level. it. I love yeah. a good example of that. When, when I was a teacher, I had uh, two kids that I was especially trying to build, um, um, positive statements for. They were the kids who had the highest rates of both self-injury and aggression in, in my class. And so I would start each day by putting tokens in my left pocket. And I would move tokens from my left pocket to my right pocket when I acknowledged those kids. My personal goal was to end each day with all the tokens in my right pocket. And so uh, tokens can be used in many ways, Polly. Yeah. And I, I just think um, part of what part of what I think we do is too often we build educational strategies that work pretty well for highly nurtured, well-developing, highly supported kids. Mm -hmm. And then we're surprised and uh, unhappy when those same strategies don't work with kids who come from more difficult circumstances. We're unwilling to do that. Um, and we're going to continue to advocate for the strategies that we think um, are needed by all kids. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, listen, this has been a wonderful conversation. Uh, thank you for all the great things that you've done. I certainly would never have gone on my path down OBM had I not been exposed to PBIS. And I mean this, I think OBM could certainly take a lot out of what you guys have done with PBIS because I, I almost look at PBIS as being the first large scale application of OBM in education. It was just missing some loops, but you guys are building loops in and it's like shaping the process. And so uh, well done to you and well done to your colleagues. And thanks so much for taking the time out. Uh, if somebody wants to get in touch with you or if you want to direct them to some of your books, which, by the way, some of your books got me through being a behavior analyst in schools when I first came <laughs> in. So thank you for that as well, brother. You know, where can they reach you or, you know, what you want to direct them to? I would direct them to PBIS.org, the website where they can download virtually all of the materials and strategies and systems that we've got. People can also contact me at the University of Oregon. Well, excellent. Yeah. All right. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you, Thank much. you so much. Bye-bye. Right. Bye. Traditionally, many crisis management systems have taken a what's wrong with you approach that begins as a person escalates when addressing behavioral issues. PCM, as a trauma-informed approach rooted in applied behavior analysis, shifts this perspective from what's wrong with you to what happened to you by having a complete picture of a person's situation in life, past and present. This approach is fundamental to applied behavior analysis and therefore PCM as it seeks to determine the root causes of behavior based on both the current environment and the individual's history as a means of individualizing education, treatment, and support. For more about PCM, check out crisisintervention.com.